everyone. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of Faith in Fine Print with your hosts, Nihal Khan and... Oman Nusrat. How's it going, everyone? Oman Nusrat. We are back after being off for a while. Um, yeah. We legit have not uh, met because of COVID and so many other things that have happened um, in our personal lives, in the world, but uh, it's good yeah. to be back. Have you been, Oman? I've been all right. They didn't renew our contracts. So we had to kind of just go independent. That's what happened. I'm just kidding. Is who is they? There is no they. The man there is a they. DJ Khaled said, "Be afraid, or you know, be be careful of they." You know, that's true. They are the ones that don't want you to succeed. There is a they. There is a they. So, um, to all of our listeners, thank you so much for um, your support. Uh, we haven't, we didn't even start uh, this podcast a year ago. And um, we've already released about uh, eight episodes. We have uh, had the chance to uh, be involved with a lot of cool speakers that we were that were doing amazing work and have them on our show. Um, we've hit about 1,300 uh, listens altogether from everyone. Um, but um, it's been challenging, right, with COVID mm-hmm. and uh, people being uh, pushed into a space where they're getting sick or their mental health being affected or God forbid they're dying or losing their jobs. Um, and I think um, a lot of the world is adjusting, right? And we're learning, we're constantly growing. Um, and how do we actually go about to continue that learning process so that we can continue to stay up to date, number one, with how the world is functioning? And then number two, how do we continuously uh, learn? So our guest today is um, someone who I really respect, um, mainly because in a world that is very inconsistent, he's probably one of the most consistent people that I've seen. Um, Our guest today is Umar Osman. He's professionally a technology consultant, um, and he's also a certified project manager, and he's also a certified John Maxwell uh, certified leadership trainer and speaker. So for those of you that have done any reading and like leadership books, John Maxwell is almost always uh, the way to go. Uh, he's a very, very uh, productive, professional, and successful uh, leadership co- uh, uh, coach. And one of the quotes that I think sticks out the most about Maxwell was uh, when he said that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, so check out John Maxwell's works. Omer has also uh, held many leadership roles within a bunch of different national organizations. He's a founding member of MuslimMatters.org, a uh, very well-read uh, blog pertaining to issues regarding Muslims throughout the world, uh, as well as Qalam Institute in the Dallas area. He's a regular khatib in the Dallas area, and he's delivered presentations at national conventions and Islamic centers across the United States and Canada. Um, and today we're going to be talking to Umar about a variety of different subjects, which we'll get into uh, in a moment. So uh, Umar, assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Faith and Fine Print. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Alhamdulillah, how are you? I'm good. Hanging in there. Hanging in there. Um, let's jump right into it, man. Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned, uh, I've known you probably since 2008, right? And that's almost yeah. 12, 13 years. Um, and, you know, you're a father, you're married, you have a job, um, and yet you have stayed active in whatever capacity that you are able to stay active in your community, right? Um, people may see your work online and they may think that a lot of what you've done um, or accomplished within the community through what you've produced um, is something that you just did in an online arena, but you're a regular Fatih, you regularly work with the community, you helped found uh, Alam Institute, um, 
you know, when they weren't, when there wasn't a seminary, when there weren't Umrah packages, when there weren't uh, traveling seminars, um, you know, and, and in, in retrospect to all of that, there's a lot of continuous learning that you've engaged in. And I wanted to kind of talk to you about that. Like, tell us about yourself. Um, what piqued your interest? What piqued your interest to help community and to build uh, products and services that would help the Muslim community? So the floor is yours. Sure. So I think community, so starting at that point of community work, um, you know, I grew up seeing community work all the time. So my dad was always much a board member, president, secretary, treasurer, you name it, he did it. So from an early age, uh, I've seen that as kind of the model of, you know, he's, he works, he spends time with the family, and then he's got something going for the community as well. So that model's sort of ingrained in my head from an early age. Uh, I think for myself, it was, it just took a little bit of time to figure out, well, how can I make what I consider to be a meaningful contribution? And I think along the way, it was mostly being blessed with just some good opportunities and being able to know some of the right people at the right times is, you know, that's not in your control, but it worked out that way. So for example, Sheikh Abdel Nasser was my local Imam since the late nineties. Uh, we were praying Tarawi behind him while he was still studying in Pakistan. So that's way before Qalam or conventions or any of that stuff. He was just Imam Nasser, our local masjid guy. Like that was that. So, you know, so, so being, having known some of those, you know, people like that from early on, it's definitely helpful. Yeah. And during that time period, when you were there um, in Dallas and with Sheikh Abdul Nasser, um, when it came to obviously you're you know you're from the Dallas community it's one of the largest or one of the larger Muslim communities uh, right now in the United States what what did the scene look like back then were there um a lot of organizations that there are now and like what did the groundwork look like for the work that you're doing now so Dallas didn't have a whole lot going on for a long time um in if you know rewind back to so you said 2008 I think that's like a good a good uh, time marker for Dallas. So at about that time, excuse me, there wasn't a lot going on. Actually, I was living in Atlanta, I was moving back to Dallas and I didn't want to move back to Dallas because I felt like there wasn't anything in the Muslim community there. So I either wanted to stay in Atlanta or I was even looking at places like Houston or somewhere else. My family was here, so that was the main driver. But um, aside from that, there wasn't really much going on. Uh, at, you know, at that time, I remember in, God, it must have been 05, I think, like Al-Maghrib started in Dallas, but not enough people were interested, so it fizzled out because that culture of learning or taking classes just wasn't there. Like the, even in college, I remember our, we didn't have like a real MSA. I didn't have a real MSA experience. Uh, so a lot of those things just weren't here. They weren't active. And the masjid scene is nowhere like you see now. You know, the, the masjids that people see now is like the big mega masjids. Irving masjid was, that's like the most famous one. But at that time, it was still like a shopping center or had just gotten built, you know. Um, and so those things kind of grew from their infancy. A couple of imams came in, took over, and then it slowly started to build from there. But for quite a while, there wasn't really much going on. Um, I think that's one of the reasons that Gullum was able to take off because Gullum initially was 
a local meshed program. It was, you know, quite literally just Saturday seminars for the local community. And one of the reasons that it took off quickly was because there wasn't anything else like that going on at the time. Do you think yeah. the thing that, um, you know, allowed it to grow, like what was the, the need in the community? You mentioned that people weren't prepared for, you know, the whole sitting down and learning regularly and taking classes and all that. Um, and I'm, and I'm wondering because, you know, in Connecticut, we have and parts of Connecticut, we have the same thing, right? Where people uh, may not be ready for a weekly thing or a bi-weekly thing, um, but they're ready for like a monthly thing, right? So where do you start? And was the need there a sense of community? Was it a sense of, um, you know, uh, a place to seek knowledge uh, from verified, you know, sources? Um, what was the need uh, at that time? I would say it was like a little bit of all of those, so to speak, right? So, you know, if, if you can rewind that long, there was really no such thing as like a mushroom program. There were some family nights with an MS word flyer with typos and a bad dinner. Uh, <laughs> there was your weekly halakha that like four uncles attended and all pontificated about the Quran on their own. And like, that was about it. There wasn't really, a, you know, a culture of doing programs at other masjids or, or even, or even going to a masjid that wasn't your local masjid. You know, there, there was no, for most people, there was no reason to ever go attend Juma somewhere else just because of who the khatib was. It was, this is our masjid, this is where we go, this is what we do, whatever they have to offer, great, whatever they don't, they don't. And so at that time, seeing, you know, things like Al Maghrib, for example, was, that was very new and innovative to have marketing for a class or to modernize the learning format. Um, I think we take that for granted now, but at that time, I think that was a major shift in mentality to say, hey, we're going to run, we're going to teach you Islam, but we're not going to just sit in the corner of the masjid on the floor. We're going to actually do it like an actual classroom, mm -hmm. the way that you're accustomed to learning in a university. And so that was different enough that people were like, oh, wow, you know, we can learn about Islam in a quote unquote modern format. So when we did seminars, it was accounting for those things, right? So it was accounting for the marketing and packaging. Mm -hmm. It was accounting for the format because we're also looking at, well, okay, who, who's, if only the old uncles are showing up, well, who's serving like the families or the people of the young kids? They're, they're not coming, not because they don't want to, but it's hard. You, if you got a four-year-old at home, you're not coming to a masjid class twice a week. It's, mm -hmm. it's impossible. And so we went to like a monthly format and with a monthly format made accommodations like, well, okay, if we're going to do a monthly class, let's have babysitting. Let's make sure that we serve lunch. Like, let's make sure that we try to accommodate people so they can come and they can actually learn. And then the other thing, and the last point I'll make here is on the knowledge front was we wanted to push the imams to showcase what they could do. You know, like, okay, you went and you studied Islam for 10 years or 12 years you know a whole bunch of stuff that's way beyond what you showcase in Sunday school to the 12 year olds, right? You have a lot more to offer than just reading a hadith after Isha every night, right? So uh, do this class, but, and I, and I, and I, this was a point of contention almost. I had to push them. I was like, look, when you're researching tafsir, don't you find these cool little gems that you share with your other Imam buddies? They're like, oh yeah, all the time. And I'm like, do you teach them in class? They're like, no, because people don't understand it. And I was like, well, take that stuff and teach it. 
And I go, even if it goes over their heads, at least it'll be new enough and interesting enough that they'll know that there's a lot more to it than what they've been accustomed to. That's really interesting. Do you think that um, when you started, when you changed the format of those classes and, and you made it, you know, like you said, less of like, a, let's sit in the corner and go over things, but now it's almost like a, a seminar or a college seminar, changing the format to fit their notion of what a serious educational environment looks like. When you did that, do you think their understanding of seeking knowledge changed? Do you feel that they started to take it more seriously? I think so, because I think the environment affects your expectations. Mm -hmm. It's like when you go to, you know, when you go to a fast food restaurant versus a fine dining restaurant, or if you look, or if you're doing a, like a Dawa table at a college, right? We, we ran into this issue at my college. Do you have like these, you know, really low quality mass produced grand translations that are falling apart with like a cheap discolored cover? Mm -hmm. Or do you have something that's actually packaged in a nice and appealing way? And I understand that there's always a cynical side of like, well, it shouldn't matter. The message is all that matters. But no, like the environment makes a huge difference. The appearance makes a huge difference. And so I think when people see that the organizers of the event and the teachers of the event have put an extra level of seriousness in their preparation beyond normal, I think it sets the expectation for the student as well that they come and match that level also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not only that, I think, I think what you mentioned, Omer, um, that's a very, very, very astute point to really ponder about that our environment, right, and how our environment affects us. And I think right now, more than ever, people are realizing how their environment or lack thereof is actually affecting their ability to be healthy and performative within society. And it's it's, you know, people are, are cooped up at home around people that they're not used to being around as often as they are yeah. around them as often. And, and that is causing issues. Um, but to kind of move forward on that point, you know, once upon a time, the, uh, the weekend courses or the double weekend seminars, or the single weekend seminars, or the day long intensives, um, and, and you can kind of comment on this, but I find personally that, um, as I get older, as you know, as I mentioned, you have a family, um, I work with an Islamic center, it's tougher and tougher sometimes to really give um, physically eight hours of, uh, of your Saturday and Sunday uh, to being in a classroom in an intensive manner, wherein you may learn information, but at the same time, the way we learn changes as we grow, right? The yeah. way you learn, um, when you were five, like for example, the, the way you're gonna teach your child as they're a five-year-old or the way you're taught as a five-year-old is not the same as a 10-year-old, as a 15-year-old, as a 20-year-old. Um, and one thing which I think that the learning process for the Muslim community, the pedagogical model, right? And pedagogy and the study of teaching, uh, the thing that we're suffering, I feel like, is um, we've had like 15, almost 20 years of this form of teaching. But as young families are starting to settle, they're realizing that it's not actually the most conducive way to learn. So you see people now having, especially with COVID, one thing that has occurred is that everyone is forced to engage with their communities in an online format. Like, why would I show up to a place if I can get this X, Y, and Z thing uh, through the internet for my family and whatnot? But I guess moving forward, the evolution of learning in the Muslim community. Do you like what? What are we? What? What do we need to do to be productive again in this post-COVID uh, era, or in the COVID and the post-COVID era? So 
I feel that this is one area where our community is perpetually behind. Uh, we don't keep up with learning trends. We don't evolve and adjust fast enough, right? So when, when the weekend seminar came out, it was awesome and everyone was like, we'll make all the sacrifices in the world to attend. Okay, cool, that's awesome. But after a while it becomes ubiquitous. Everyone's got a weekend seminar now, right? Everyone's got that program going on. So now what are you going to do differently? Um, someone comes up with an idea like, let's do something online this way. Oh, that works. Everyone just goes and copies it, whether it's actually working or effective or not. I think what needs to be done with the learning is it almost has to be re-engineered from the ground up in a sense that what are the learning outcomes? What are the goals that we need to achieve? Who is it targeted for? We still have way too much of a one size fits all mentality. We do the weekend seminar and everyone come, whether you're 15, whether you're 25, whether you're 75, whether you're married or single or whatever, you know, we ignore all demographics. We ignore all markers and we just say, everyone show up. Um, before we got on the call, we were talking about ICI. And I remember when, when you were here in Dallas, we did a, pro um, there was a program that one of your colleagues organized at the Masjid for how to, how to, get through like a job interview and pick a career, something along those lines. So the program was geared around like career advice, picking a major, getting your foot in the door in the corporate ring and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. After Mugger Prayer, the board member gets on the mic and makes an announcement. We have a youth program, all the eight to 12 year olds come sit in the front. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, dude, no, he goes, isn't this a youth program for teenagers? And I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, and how are eight year olds teenagers? He's like, but it's for the youth. And I'm like, no, they, this is not going to be useful for them, but they can't see that they see everyone as the same. And so we have to go back and like literally re-engineer lives matter move. Oh no. They're all youth. Yeah. So I think we have to go back and really relook at what are we teaching? What's the purpose? What's the intended outcome? And then how best can it be delivered? Because there's not a one size fits all solution. To your point, someone in college or someone whose kids are older, they, for them to block out a weekend, hey, that actually might be fun. They might want to do that, right? Someone that's got a couple of kids at home that are younger, blocking out a whole weekend is the equivalent of like moving mountains. Yeah. Uh, it's going to be impossible, you know? So, we have to really relook at figuring out different ways to target different people. And we can't just treat it as a monolith anymore. We need to have targeted activities for all different types of groups and in all different types of formats. And I think also one thing that a lot of our communities fell into the trap of is that um, there were many organizations doing that, right? And I think we have learned, but I think one of the mistakes that happened is exactly what you said, is that you may have Speaker X of organization Y, and again, I'm not signaling out any specific organization. Me and you during that time when we know of at least three or four organizations that were uh, that were doing that, right? But like they'd go in and they'd give a one size fits all explanation to everyone's problems. And when the shoe's not fitting, when you're trying to take like a square or a cylinder uh, shape and shove it into the triangle thing, you're gonna break the box, you're gonna get agitated and you're gonna break the piece. And I feel like um, for so many years, a lot of folks kind of dropped off the bandwagon or had their own like, own, like faith crisis issues or their own like self uh, fulfillment issues. 
Um, wherein the actual nature of the problem that they were facing was not being addressed at an individualized specific level, number one. And then number two, you know, um, to Alman's point, which you mentioned as well, Omer, was that how you package something matters, right? Um, uh, but at the same time, to go into an extreme where we're spending a lot of time on just the packaging as opposed to the, to the yeah. content and the mm -hmm. concept, is equally detrimental, if not more, than than not packaging your thing at all. And I find it freaking hilarious, right? Um, because we didn't have like this um, social media Islam thing that like exists now, or people have a controversy like every week uh, in the Muslim community on the internet, or someone just speaks like an utter jerk and expects you to come to the truth or like accept Islam, right? Um, like with due respect, I find most online dawah efforts hilarious and ridiculous because there's nothing prophetic about the way they're calling to people. They're calling them out. They're calling them names. They're publicly shaming them. And they expect that like that's going to actually attract people. But there's a point that I had put up recently. Um, if your spirituality is causing you to uh, see people as less or to become belligerent towards those close to you, you're not actually learning spirituality. You're learning ideologue and nonsense, in which is being which your which your heart and mind are taking in, which is actually in the form of a sheepskin, right? Like it's 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 hidden. It's not it's not real. That's not real spirituality. But I, I guess not to go off on like a tangent, but how how do we actually now approach this? Like you know, like like I I feel personally, I was actually talking to someone about this. I don't feel comfortable putting my own thoughts and ideas and work that I'm writing even or posts um, to share with the public anymore because I don't like the reaction I've gotten before. And it is very like hurtful. And, you know, what, 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 would, what would you advise in, or what would you advise in, in that area? I mean, that's like a lot of topics that you covered in one. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I think, and this will probably get me in trouble too. I think the vast majority of what people consider online dawah is really more of an exercise of ego and self-delusion more than it is dawah. Um, thanks for joining us, everyone. That's faith. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Um, but it's Nihal, is it like it's exactly what you described. It's it's self-serving. It, it's made to build yourself up by tearing others down. And it has nothing to do with communicating any type of a positive message. There's nothing remotely prophetic about it. it it's clear as day, mm -hmm. but I think people keep falling for it kind of like, you know, tabloids or Howard Stern or something like that, where it's just you keep wanting to see the next train wreck. And so people are watching it and consuming it. It gets traffic. And because there's an Islam label on it, it gets categorized in this Dawah category, even though there's nothing educational or uplifting about it you know, by any stretch of the imagination. I think in terms of, you know, what you said about like sharing your own thoughts and, and so on, that that's where it's tough. And I don't have an easy answer. I personally also try, usually err on the side of not sharing things. Yeah. Um, I would say anytime I'm thinking about posting something, if I stop and pause, nine times out of 10, I don't put it up. Right. Uh, if uh, there's a lot of times where I'll post something, I'll look at it and I'll just be like, Nah, and then just go back and delete it right away. You know, I've, I've typed like absolute, like complete paragraphs. Yeah, being like, now nah, I'm just not going to post this. Yeah, <laughs> just like, dude, it's like why? it's like if you say on the internet, 
I mean, not on the sorry on social media, right? Like, I like brownies. It's like, why do you hate cupcakes? Yeah. Why are you a fascist against well, cookies? Like, uh, literally, like the reactions you'll get. Before we jump into like the social the social media thing, I think you know I wanted to comment earlier. We were talking about the one size fits all class approach, and you know, changing the structure of those things. Um, I noticed that one of the uh, one of the obstacles in doing that. Um, that I've witnessed in the massage and, you know, different institutions is that, you know, you would come out and say, oh, this is a class for this group, right? And then there's like certain people in the community who will be insecure, right? And be like, well, well, why can't we attend? What are you teaching them that you can't teach us? Or like, there's this thing of like, maybe not even trusting the teachers or not trusting the process um, of addressing different people uh, and talking to people where they are. And this idea of insecurity and how things, you know, flow, I think that just carries over into social media, right? Like it's social media is a place where insecurity thrives um, and it comes out in the worst ways. And, and so when you add into that formula uh, dawa or like, you know, trying to talk to people about religion, um, it turns into a very crazy situation um, because once again, you know, social media, it's not like we have if someone posts, if Nihal posts a video, it's going out to the seven, the 70 year old uncle who has a Facebook, but also the 14 year old kid who has a Facebook. So it's going to everyone anyway. And then you have all of that, those insecurities, um, uh, you know, not, it's not being filtered or anything like that. It's just people commenting. And, and then that's where I think the toxicity kind of comes from, but going off of this idea of insecurity and social media, uh, Nihal, I think you had mentioned that Omar had written, uh, I think it was a book on the fic of social media. Um, so I kind of wanted to dive into that as well. Yeah, so um, I mean, it's about really all these topics that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, but come the fic of social media started that about five years ago, uh, you know, just writing about the topic. And then that turned into people saying, Oh, can you give a presentation on this at the masjid? And it kind of snowballed from there. And then the book was a culmination of those community visits, all those conversations, you know, having with people after presenting, and then also just kind of repackaging a little bit of that writing and updating it, but really covering a lot of these topics, you know, like you, like you just mentioned insecurity, that's a huge part of what happens on social media, not just from, uh, you know, what you mentioned, but also like what you consume can make you feel insecure. Something that you post might make someone else feel insecure. And then that manifests itself in different ways. The way envy starts up and gets magnified by those things. Uh, online dawah and those ramifications. So the book is intended to be as much as I could be timeless in the sense that it's platform agnostic. It's not specific to Facebook or Twitter or Snapchat or anything like that, but more what are essentially the basic Sunday school level Islamic principles that we need to apply in the digital age. How many times did you teach your pick of social media seminar before the book actually went up? Because I know you were teaching for years. I want to say close to 50. Okay. But it was, it was at least one a month for a while. So on average, yeah. yeah. That's cool. I, th I thought Nihal's question was, how many years have you been teaching it? And he was like, at least 50. I was like, wait, how old, is, how old are you? <laughs> I don't know how many times. But um, with that, let me jump to another topic, Omar. Um, continuous learning. Like, that's the one thing which um, I, I, I seriously respect you a lot for. Um, you know, you've been 
consistently involved in just getting up there. I remember one of the first people to introduce me to Malcolm Gladwell was you, one of the first people to introduce me uh, to a lot of different leadership books uh, was yourself. Um, and I know like at that time you were, I think a management consultant for, for some years and um, I'm sure it helped you in your career a lot. Um, and you tried your best to apply that into the nonprofit sector within the Muslim community, which alhamdulillah was a very successful feature in my opinion um, in the way that um, you traveled the country and provided a lot of the community's advice to grow. One of the ways uh, which you did that, I remember, was the website uh, muslimsi.com, which I think now has been completely transferred over to your Ibn Abi Umar website. Um, yeah. But about like, so, so there's two questions. Number one, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you got into the habit of continuous learning um, and how uh, how you went from learning for like corporate productivity into personal growth and how you kind of, you know, um, went from one side to the other or, you know, how you kind of play with both areas. And then number two, um, about your work with like Muslim SI and Productive Muslim to have uh, better communities overall. So, I mean, in terms of learning, I think that's just always been a part of my nature. Like I've always been an avid reader, even since I was a kid. Um, and so, you know, when you get the when you get that MSA bug of learning about Islam, you dive in and start reading everything and learning everything that you can. And then, you know, same thing in the professional side, you have like, you have to learn things to survive or grow in your career. I think for me, there was, there was an inflection point somewhere along the way of like, oh, these things aren't mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. You know, they, there's an intersection and one helps the other quite a bit. I think when I think, you know, and to give credit where credit is due, I think Muhammad Al-Sharif was one of the first people that really pushed that concept of, hey, there's a bunch of things out there in the world that we need to learn from. You know, it's not just that we learn from the Muslims and that's like kafar secular stuff. He was just like, no, like there's a bunch of useful stuff that we need to learn and implement. And I think one of his one of his really early lectures was something like the teaching methods of the Prophet, where he took you know, like learning methods and showed us from the sunnah how they were applied, right? So that's one of those things that stuck like, oh, there is definitely some type of an overlap, right? And in, in learning these things. And then I think with, with leadership in particular, uh, I'll share two things that for me really cemented these ideas in my head. So one was as, you know, same thing, as I'm diving in, like learning all these things, like, oh, wow, there's all this good material, everyone needs to know it. But then you're also thinking like, well, okay, well, how did people learn this stuff before? How did Muslim scholars know about any of these things? Or, you know, how do they, if, if I see, you know, a sheikh implementing like very good leadership characteristics, for example, I'm like, well, he didn't attend like a John Maxwell class or something like that. Where did he get it from? And so that curiosity point led me to understand that really it wasn't that they studied leadership. It was that they studied Sira properly. Right, like they studied the Sira with a teacher that taught them what prophetic adab looks like. And when someone is actually following prophetic adab, almost by default, they will exhibit amazing leadership characteristics. They treat, they know how to treat people well. They know how to connect with people. They know how to be compassionate and respectful and empathetic and all those things, because it, it comes from the Sunnah. Mm. And the other, the other thing for me was when I went to the John Maxwell training, the one that was in person. So this is like a yearly event. And if you can imagine, it's like four or 5,000 people all congregated into like a huge, gigantic hotel ballroom. Like you take over the hotel type of thing. And pre-COVID, pre -COVID. 
Pre-COVID, yes, definitely pre-COVID. Um, but, you know, I was taking it because someone had recommended it to me. I didn't have a particular goal going into it really beyond personal enrichment and just kind of a TBD. I know this stuff is good. I just don't know what I'm going to do with it yet. Right. That was, that was my, like, I'll figure it out. When I got there, yes, there was definitely a lot of people who were in it to build their own personal business or their own side hustle. Uh, a lot of them were very well, because it's like an evangelical community. So the John Maxwell folks were very well integrated with the Chick-fil-A people. So a lot of them had leadership con training contracts with Chick-fil-A franchise owners. Wow. So they were coming to get John Maxwell training so they could go back and start training like Chick-fil-A managers basically, right? So that's one group. But another group of people that I met there, what were people that were already successful professionals, they already had their own, you know, they were already earning their living and everything. And they were like, I'm here to learn how to be a better volunteer at my church. That was their only intention in, in attending this event and going through the John Maxwell process and all that was, I want to learn the things that will make me a better volunteer at the church. And for me, I was just like, oh my God, we're so behind. <laughs> it's like, wait, you want to serve your church and not make a buck off of it. Like you want to learn to be a good volunteer. Yeah. Wow. You know, that's crazy. Can you also talk to us a little bit about Muslim SI and, and Qalam and, you know, and, and how you got into those specific projects and like, I, I actually really missed the Muslim SI stuff. I used to enjoy it. Like I, I hate, hate, hate email lift serves and like, but I enjoyed getting like a Muslim SI like email. That's how much I like Muslim SI. <laughs> So Muslim SI was my, my good friend, Imran Huck and myself. Um, Cause you know, we were always at, at that time, we were both active with like Mush's stuff and all of that. And we we're just like, man, no one's talking about how to do this stuff better. Everyone in the world is having all these same conversations about how terrible everything's going, but no one's actually saying like, here's something that you can implement that'll do it better. And so the blog started with that intention of let's, let's see if we can just put stuff out that gains traction. And alhamdulillah, it did. Like, we, you know, we got really good feedback in the sense of uh, board members emailing saying that they, you know, maybe had an article. One of the articles is like an agenda item at their next board meeting. Um, you know, we, I did an interview with Sheikh Abdul Nasser on how to hire an imam for your masjid, like realistically. Yeah. You know, like not the whole Superman speaks four languages and can connect with the youth and do marital counseling and all, you know, a hundred other things. But can, what does it realistically look like? With huh? hand in its plate and can jump through a hula hoop of fire while speaking Urdu in a Hyderabadi accent. Yeah. For a lot of people, um, a lot of places I've actually, and it's literally like, can, you know, is he, has he memorized the Quran and can, he, does he recite nicely? And that's literally it. Like, has he done a Jummah Khutbah? Nice. Cool. Yeah, it's like two um, extremes. <laughs> it, yeah. It, and it was just surprised me because I remember, um, you know, what was it? There was a situation in which someone was uh, not even qualified really to be in that position. Um, they were an engineering student that it was an engineering student that just moved to America and needed a place to live. And they're like, okay, since you don't have any money, just be the, be the imam of the masjid. <laughs> And, you know, we'll just give you a place to stay. And it's amazing how, you know, we can go to literally any other profession and we seek qualifications for that person. But for the person who's dealing with our hearts and our spirituality, we kind of just, yeah, like literally anyone will do. Ad hoc it. Yeah.
No, so I, I remember. Yeah. I, I, I remember. Um, I forgot which masjid it was. It doesn't matter. I'm not going to say it publicly. But there was a masjid that um, had hired an imam from Al Azhar, right? And for those of you that are not familiar with Al Azhar University, is one of the oldest Islamic universities in the world. Um, but they don't just teach Islam; they teach other subjects as well. So they had a um, an imam that graduated from there. But guess what? His degree was in in English, <laughs> and they hired him. Wow. But you know, uh, it, it's just interesting because during that time period, I feel like, Omar, that you were writing, it's like the community was was either falling into that extreme of just hiring anyone who's a Joe Schmo who can't even say the basics uh, of, of, of Quran, while at the other end, you had like, um, you know, an expectation to some, for someone to be Superman. Um, but, you, you know, it's interesting. I actually had a discussion with someone. Um, she was one of my classmates, and she... Uh, writes about the intersection of Islamic law and digital media. So talking about how uh, issues that come up in the Muslim community, um, we need to talk about, to some degree, uh, seeing what authority looks like in a modern world, right? Because with digital platforms, anyone and everyone can have, have authority. Uh, anyone who has a, you know, a mic and a camera can have authority and say the most ridiculous things, right? Um, until you're Donald Trump and you get suspended from Twitter, but but it, it's ridiculous. And and I felt like that you were speaking to that space before it was like the uh, it was hip to speak to that space. I think it's just a matter of having noticed those behaviors popping up, right? Like I think that's one of you know Hamla being able to be at the beginning of something like Muslim Matters and some of these other projects was we got to see the development of this stuff early on, you know, before really, I mean, we got to see the advent of the online Islamic community before social media just poured gasoline all over it. Wow, and what so, a metaphor. <laughs> you know, and so those behaviors were always there. It, it was just now, it's just a lot more amplified. Yeah. No, I hear you. Hopefully we can grow and you know, see what solutions are up next. Uh, with that, we're going to take a short break, uh, hear a word from our sponsor, The Mantle, and uh, we'll finish up our podcast with our guest, Omar Usman. Stay tuned, everyone. Hey, listeners, wondering what The Mantle is? The Mantle is an organization based in Fairfield County, Connecticut. We are dedicated to creating sacred spaces that facilitate the understanding of Islamic spirituality. The Mantle aims to revive the prophetic tradition of understanding, compassion, and spiritual cultivation. We encourage authenticity in exchange for authenticity. Come as you are to learn Islam as it is. Find out more about The Mantle by following us online on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Mantle of Love. We hope you enjoy the rest of this episode of Faith in Fine Print. Okay, we are back. Oops, I want to play that again. Um, that was a message from The Mantle, uh, our sponsor. Uh, and for those of you that are not familiar with it, check them out, Mantle of Love on Facebook. Um, they're a organization based in Connecticut. Alman is a part of it and one of the founders. And uh, they're doing good work in bringing programming and awareness 
um, about community development within the Connecticut community. But let's get let's get back into it, Omer, and then we're basically um, have a little bit more to go. But Omer, right now, what are you working on? Um, what are some of the projects that you've been active with and things that you've been passionate about? Um, things that you may have started to work on um, after quarantine kind of took hold, but like what's going on in your life right now? You're, you're muted, Omer. So most of quarantine for me really ended up being getting the fickle social media book done. Yeah. Uh, that was something I'd wanted to do for a very long time. Like it was a running joke with my friends, like when are you ever going to get this book done? Uh, but Hamla finished that up. And then now it's really, I want to write another book if I'm being just completely transparent like that. That's what I want to do next. And it will most likely be uh, along the lines of that Muslim SI slash leadership stuff. Uh, I think there's something there. I haven't quite fleshed it out yet, but that that's where I'm shifting focus to next, inshallah. But aside from that, really, it's uh, with Productive Muslim, we've you know, the, there's, they've got the Baraka Academy program. So it's focused on faith-based professional development. And I'm leading the book club there. So in the book club, we're doing a mix of, it's, it's meant to be a mix of both secular and Islamic books. So yeah. taking a subject, but going into it a little bit deeper. So for example, we might read a John Maxwell book on leadership, but then also read like the John Adair book on prophetic leadership. Uh, we might read a book on, you know, one month we did Atomic Habits, which is a pretty standard, you know, habit building book. But then we also did uh, In the Early Hours by Khura Murad. Yeah. So, you know, trying to find complementary works like that, that are focused on self-improvement, but giving it a heavy dose of the Islamic side of it as well. Yeah, it's hitting that. I think the, the proper word is gravitas, where, um, you know, you're leading people into a space where like, they can have a practical application of everything that they're learning, but also not getting lost in the jargon and in the um, theoretical nature of a lot of what is taught. And I think that goes into another aspect, like a way that we lose people um, is when, you know, one thing I like to say is that the, the beauty of our faith is that teaching was one of the first things that was taught to us, right? Like the first revelation was read or recite in the name of your Lord, right? And reading at the end of the day requires you to read something that's written, but for the process on sake, it was repeat what is being said to you, right? It's yeah. a form of auditory learning and vocal learning that is being utilized to teach mankind a message. But it had to be uh, comprehensive. It had to be something that was coherent. And I feel like um, the biggest challenge that I think there was a book on this, but I'm forgetting. But the biggest challenge that we are facing is um, uh, in educating others is grabbing their attention, number one, sure. But number two, we're fighting in a world where there's a lot of information, but very little knowledge. Right? Absolutely. Like, I like, I think that's what it comes down to is like that gravitas between learning what wisdom is, how do you actually put that information into action? Um, but I feel like, again, like, 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 we're mentioning a lot of issues, but solution wise, you know, we mentioned that, you know, we do not evolve fast enough, or, you know, we're too much of a one size fits all community. What are practical ways that we can go about um, kind of removing that? 
Um, and, and I'll give you an example from like what I, what, you know, cause you're familiar with me, right? It's like the, re I was kind of into that whole like weekend learning yeah. and, you know, being around the most, um, uh, known shaykh or something like that. But I realized that that's not working for communities. Um, that's why I kind of got into chaplaincy says you can understand people's own, um, issues at an individual level, but it's easy to do that um, within a small community, but how can we actually understand that idea of providing individualized care and teaching for people and kind of scale it uh, in size from there? That's a tough question. Like that's, I think the challenge that really is facing our community now. And it's, you know, it's a mix of a lot of things. Uh, I think one aspect of it is as you know, like you mentioned scaling, right? Which is, yeah. that's always the natural inclination. Like how can we scale this to as many people as possible? And I think one part of like the information overload and all those things is that everyone's trying to scale everything very quickly. Mm -hmm. And I almost feel, and again, this might be like an unpopular take, but I almost feel that we have to do the opposite and that start doing more of the things that don't scale. Mm -hmm. uh, and by that, I mean, you know, as we see, for example, all the stuff taking off online and all these things happening in the online arena, we need to go back and double down on having a good experience at the masjid, you know, having, doing a kid's program or doing, you know, I know the family night program is super cliche, but people, I think there's a large demographic of people that not only would appreciate, but benefit more from just, you know, look, my oldest is 15 or about to turn 15, right? He's not going online looking for Mufti Mink videos or like the, you know, this the Seer series on Surat Al-Hujrat that's like 20 hours long. Like he doesn't care about any of that. And I can't force any of that on him. But if there was just a decent program at the Masjid where there was like a good Imam that gave like a good lesson that was enriching that there were just some other kids there that he was, you know, was friends with that for me does more for the Iman and Muslim identity almost than like trying to stick in front of YouTube and watching so-and-so shake for a few hours. Right. And so, yes, there's scaling, but I think we have to start looking, really start looking back at what does our local community look like? And I'll take it even a step further, which is I, and again, this is very anecdotal. This is extremely anecdotal. But I don't see even the mega masjid model that our communities are going to as working. And what I'm seeing as successful now, and again, very anecdotal, is the mega masjid is being used for Juma prayer, interfaith activities, or you know, just to get together. But the community building now is happening more even outside the masjid. And I'll give you our own, our own example. Like the last couple of Ramadans, uh, the most fulfilling thing that we've done in Ramadan is have a small, like a small group of families and just rotate around in each other's houses. Yeah. And that building of community was taking place outside the masjid, but that was almost much more impactful than, and I'm not trying to diss the masjid here. So I hope no one reads that, reads that into it, but, uh, but that had a, a great impact much more than some of the events happening at the masjid, you know? So 
I think there needs to be just a refocus on what actually matters and what's meaningful because yeah, you can scale, like we can put out the fic of the har and scale it out to a million people, but like, what is it ultimately going to accomplish? Who's actually going to get it? How are they going to act upon it? And so the community building really has to go back to those smaller scale things. That's one. Uh, the other, and I'm sorry, what was the other thing that you mentioned? Um, the other thing I'd basically mentioned was um, in, in, I guess, moving forward um, in our community. I mean, I, I think this, the scaling point, you made a good point, but um, I, I, I think what it also comes down to. Well, uh, let me say, let me say this about yeah. scaling though, right? So that, that was my case against scaling. In my case for scaling upward, I would say that it needs a little bit more intentionality. Right now, there's a tendency for a lot of organizations to just throw things up because we can. So uh, I get up and let's say the mushroom, just whatever happens at the mushroom automatically gets posted to YouTube, automatically gets podcasted out, automatically goes on Facebook Live, all these things just happen. And that's overwhelming because even, even if I'm only following my own local mushroom, I'm not following any other local speaker, right? I'm getting like two or three classes a week. I'm getting like the Friday clip, but I'm getting this other thing. I can't even keep up with my own mushroom in that case, right? Yeah. And so I think that even the content that we put online needs more intentionality of, or actually more curation. That's maybe what's needed is we're not just throwing everything up for the sake of it because right now there's this mentality of, oh, if we put it online, we get the reward of everyone that listens to it. So if a million people listen to it, I'm gonna get a million rewards. Like, well, no. Not everything is going to go viral. The vast majority of what you put online is going to get like 10 hits at most, yeah. right? So let's be realistic about it. Instead of flooding everyone with a bunch of stuff, let's be a little bit more selective about what we put out and why, and then also communicate the value of that so that the people who are looking for it can find it. Right. Yeah, and I think also, like you mentioned, this fixation on transactional piety, as you mentioned, like if I do X, then I get rewarded with Y. Yeah. Like even in like all these hadith and stuff, like I get 72 this, or I get a hundred that, like it's actually not a quantitative amount. It's a qualitative amount because in, you know, a lot of people forget that in Islam, like a lot of the numbers that may be mentioned, unless they're very, very, very specific are actually in reference to something which um, is, is, is qualitative more so than quantitative. So I think this fixation on transactional piety is something that we need to be aware of, that you want to do something that's holistically benefiting people so that, yes, inshallah, in the akhirah, you will be rewarded for it. The second thing I wanted to ask, curation, curation versus production. Where does the line lie there? And I think I was, while you were talking, Omar, I was examining my, um, my own bias, and a very close friend of mine mentioned this to me. They said that, um, that we, as living in a capitalist society, we have put our self-worth um, uh, we, we've equivocated, we have equivocated our self-worth uh, with how much we produce, right? And especially in a, in a COVID world, production and the idea of production kind of goes out the window because you can't be present. You know, the measurables are very different. Um, so I think a lot of people may be going through mental health issues because of the fact that their self-worth is being attacked or they feel that they're not fulfilling their self-worth because they've attached it to how much production value they hold. But what's the difference between that, curation? To that, the algorithms of like social media, it's like if you're not posting all the time, you're just not going to be seen. 
yeah, so now there's another stress of like, we need to put all, everything we're doing at the masjid, everything we're doing out there. Um, once again, going back to what Omar said, not really paying attention to how it's curated, the intention behind it, just let's do it for the sake of doing it. And um, it's not really resulting in anything, but please continue now. Yeah, no, yeah, but Oman, that's but, a really good yeah. point, right? The You can get involved with something like content creation with a good intent, mm -hmm. but as soon as you do this, the pressure mounts. Right of like having to keep up with it. You know, even now people tell me all the time, like your podcast isn't consistent enough. Your this is not consistent enough. Uh, un until, until literally until this, until I wrote this book and everyone like kind of got on my case, my Instagram profile was private. Mm -hmm. Like you couldn't reshare, do nothing on my Instagram only now because I'm trying to promote the book that I make it public. But I immediately noticed the same thing because now like Instagram is pressuring me like you need to post one more photo. You need to, you know, have this scheduled to get viewed by people, et cetera. So it, the pressure mounts as soon as you start creating content, but like Nihal, the, the line between, you know, like production contentment, et cetera, like that's, that's tough. And when you were mentioning that the thing that I thought of was something that Sheikh Abdul Nasser always tells us in Khatib workshop, which is, that when someone gives a khutbah, like the microphone is self-delusional. It, it gives you this very false sense of like self-importance and really makes you feel like you're doing something absolutely amazing. And, you know, it can go to your head very quickly. Narcissism if you're not, gets to you. Huh? The narcissism can get to you. Absolutely, right? So it's, it's a very dangerous tool to be on the mic like that. And so his advice is always like, whatever your microphone time is, there needs to be like a multiple of 10 in private, like whatever your public worship is, there needs to be like a multiple of 10 in private worship. Mm. And I think that's kind of analogous to the idea of, you know, Islamic content creation is we shouldn't be one, we shouldn't be rushing to just post anything and everything that we think of. Uh, I think one of the traps in the, like a is the pressure is one of the things that happens because of that pressure is we post things before they're ready. Like either our thoughts are not refined enough, they haven't gone through like a proper shura process and we're in a rush to just put something out there and, you know, keep our brand going or our traffic going or the site going or, you know, make it get picked up by the algorithms and all of that. And I think that we have to almost just as inefficient as it is and as much as it goes against all of the good social media practices, embrace a little bit of we're going to be unoptimized and we're going to be inefficient. And the trade-off of that is that when we finally do produce content, we can put our name on it and say that this is good quality, that it's useful, that it provides some type of benefit or value, as opposed to this popped in my head, so I threw it up. Um, but in, in terms of deriving self-worth, I think that's, that is challenging because the validation machine online is so like, it's like crack. Mm -hmm. to post something and all of a sudden everyone's like liking it or retweeting it. Like, I don't care what anybody says. It's hard not to check that and see what kind of traction it's getting or what kind of views it's getting or any of that stuff. Right. It's, it's really impossible not to look at that stuff. And so I think we have to find ways of balance, like proactively balancing that of, you know, when I do post something, how am I complimenting it with something that's not happening on the internet? You know, um, this Ramadan, I was very active online. I actually, in 30 days, 
did uh, 99 broadcasts between oh. like masjid stuff, um, uh, between relief organizations or whatever, right? Because usually in Ramadan, I leave Taraweeh and just do stuff in my local masjid, but the masjids were closed. Um, so there was an expectation to keep people engaged. But I think I basically had a crash because after Ramadan was done, I think I stayed on social media for one month. And I haven't, I've been off of Instagram since August. And the calm that I have, like to not check my likes, to not check my messages, has just been out of this world. And I'm just like, there's something wrong. If this is the culture that like is expected, it's going to destroy our in-life social culture um, that exists because we're just going to have those weird expectations of people. Um, but I think you make a you make a very good point. It's just like you know we're, we're chasing after a dopamine rush at the end of the day, and yeah. you know the plug for if you haven't seen it, the social dilemma on Netflix. It's that idea, which is that social media is re-engineering our minds uh, to such a degree to where we feel dependent upon checking our phone. Like these things are designed so that we constantly pick them up, right? Look, look at that. I pick it up and it turns on. I don't even press a button anymore. Um, and, and, and I think that the challenge that we're in is, as I mentioned before, the gravitas of number one, being productive within our, within our communities. Number two, finding that fulfillment. And then number three is not um, losing sight of what matters. What matters is social interaction. What matters is my family. What matters are my friends. What matters are my human relationships. What matters is being able to pick up the phone. And if you have an argument with someone on the internet, don't have a public, like don't, don't, don't have it out with them in public, talk to them in private. Um, but I feel like a lot of what we're saying to some degree may be, may fall on dead ears because a lot of folks aren't going to listen to that. Like what we're speaking about is not sexy, right? Yeah. You know, that it's, it's not the easiest way to get likes. It's, it's tough. I remember I was at a convention and I was um, speaking to uh, a comedian um, who's, you know, his same age as me. And I actually met him when I was on tour and he was like coming up and he was trying to like, you know, get started with this whole thing. And then I met him like two years later where I'm kind of just like, you know, not as active on anything. I'm just like here and there. And he's like very active and he's like, you know, blowing up online and everything. And so um, I was just talking to him. I was just like, yeah, like, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how I want to navigate social media. He was just like, man, you just have to post every day, like multiple times a day, just post, keep posting, keep posting. I'll just like, and he was like, so like, like, this is a rule. You have to do it. And yeah. I'm just like, post what <laughs> I'm like, what, what do I, what am I going to even post? And, um, and it's crazy because now, um, on TikTok, uh, people are actually asking that question and there are certain people on TikTok who answer and they were just like, just share random things throughout your day, share what you're eating for breakfast, share random thoughts. And I'm just like, wow, like the amount, how, how dangerous is it to constantly think in the most mundane aspects of your life to think I should share this with the rest of the world. And, also, while doing that, I can't completely be genuine because every time you're posting, every time you're in front of that camera, even the shape of your face, your expressions will change. You're not being yourself. And so, you know, how dangerous does that become over time? Uh, even for me now, uh, I, I am still trying to figure out how to navigate social media um, as a singer songwriter. It's like you're expected to just always have something. And I'm just like, I don't I don't want to. And then as soon as you say I don't want to, you're like a weirdo. It's like, how are you not doing this? 
Um, so I'm sure Nihal felt the same thing and just like constantly posting. And then that's why he, I think you got rid of it right now. It's just like, just a peace of mind of not being. Yeah. Like I wake up and I'm calmer, man. Like it's not the first thing I'm checking. It's not the last thing I'm looking at when I'm going to sleep. Um, Omar, I have a question. When you wrote Fick of Social Media, TikTok didn't exist, right? It did. Or did it? Yeah. Uh, when I started, it didn't. But I mean, when yeah. I was writing, right, when I was writing the book, it yeah, it's like like one thing I keep getting told that people like, yo, you got to get on TikTok, and I'm like, why do I need to TikTok get on TikTok? Is crazy. It's no, they're just, like, yeah, it's it's like you know, we need we need to be there to teach our youth Islam. I was like, yo, it's like if we have to just utilize um uh, literally elevator pitches to teach the most valuable aspects of our ethics system and our religious system like we've we've lost i'm sorry <laughs> like islamic muslim tiktok is the worst like i don't have tiktok by just, i have no idea I, i'm on it, tiktok and hey, oh my god it's are like you on tiktok Omar? it's what got me through the pandemic like that was my <laughs> entertainment <laughs> you know uh and there's this new thing called clubhouse that everyone keeps sending me an invite for i know nothing about it i got on clubhouse to see what it was about it's pal talk for the new it's the gen z version of pal talk oh i haven't it's, heard yeah. pal talk in like 15 years yeah <laughs> but the uh, the tiktok thing is, is crazy because first of all you'll be scrolling through and this has happened to me at least like two dozen times right like someone says something so matter-of-factly like there's this one woman who was talking about the origin of the word mosque and how the queen used to call muslims mosquitoes and then the term mosque came about and i'm and i'm watching it and i'm and there's like thousands and thousands of likes on this thing and i'm just like this doesn't seem accurate and i go and the first comments is like this is complete nonsense right so it's the amount of misinformation yeah. Um, and that's not even like Muslims. If you're going talking about the Muslims, they'll say the most absurd things. And it's just a bunch of people either validating it. It's all, it's the entire thing of like, you know, uh, personal truth versus, you know, absolute truth. So everyone has their personal truths based off of emotion and everyone's validating each other in that sense. And, uh, and it becomes very like numbing to the point. And, and I actually um, talk about, I, I mentioned this, I think at a recent program or something where with TikTok, the whole thing is based off like, you know, how it works, like the duets and like, you know, you lip sync and you do the dances, yeah. everything is like a joke, right? So yeah. it comes to this idea, like when I was growing up, there was this hadith that was like, oh, uh, the prophet said that, you know, uh, excessive laughter deadens the heart. And I used to think to myself, like, hmm, that doesn't seem like a, you know, a great way to look at life. Like, shouldn't we always be happy and everything? And then now I'm realizing that everything has become a joke. And when yeah. that happens, you actually can't access spirituality. You can't access seriousness. You can't even reflect seriously because you start taking everything. Even young Muslims now are looking at religion and spirituality and life and being like, yeah, like we're here and then we're going to die. Let's make fun of everything. Um, even the most sacred things, you know, uh, you know, there was a whole trend on TikTok of like people having conversations with God and the things that God would say and stuff like that. We don't realize yeah. how offensive that stuff is, but it's all a joke. And I mean, that's my comment on TikTok. I mean, this can go on for a while, but yeah. No, I I agree completely. Like it's, I, I've, during the height of the pandemic, well, I'm still in the height of the pandemic, but it was like my entertainment source for a while. But now I don't go on as much. Like maybe every few days, I'll just kind of see what the latest memes are, so to speak. But, uh, but yeah, you're like the misinformation just 
it hit me like it was like a gut punch like how many muslims were just on there just very matter of factly saying things and not even on like simple issues like they're up there giving like detailed fatwas on islamic finance and i'm just like <laughs> I know you're wrong, <laughs> but you know, it's going to take me more than a 45 second, like song and dance to tell you why, <laughs> you know, like it there. And then, you know, the other thing is like you mentioned the reflection and spirituality part. It's when people are engaging on those platforms, right? So like I had a conversation with, you know, with one of the youth, I had a conversation with one of the youth about TikTok, and I said, look, yeah, you, and you know, the, the discussion was, well, isn't it better to be on there and give Islamic reminders so we can reach people that are on there? And I said, sure, but do you want to be known as the TikTok guy? Like, is that what you want your Islamic reputation to boil down to is that you're the dude who made Muslim memes on TikTok for Dawah? I was like, okay, it might be beneficial, but you're never going to be able to outgrow that. You're going to, that, you know, that stereotype is going to follow you around. Now, that doesn't mean that someone can't do it. Like, I think Imam Suhaib Webb is on there. He does a good job. You know, he does a great job of engaging on newer platforms as an early adopter, right? But that's very much the exception. Very much the exception. I think most people can't do that. But, you know, everything being a joke is so true. And the thing that pains me the most is when I see most, like, and they're clearly, like, practicing Muslim families, you know, like the mom is wearing hijab and this and that. And the kids are just pranking their parents like, oh, I got a tattoo. Ha ha. No, I didn't. Or like making my dad think I'm drinking alcohol and the dad freaks out. And then they like post it up, you know, for for likes. And it's like that's when I the hadith of, you know, lying to, or was now was the hadith about like. Uh, yeah, like when you even tell jokes, you shouldn't lie. You're not. Not, to not only that, but like, you know, doing some type of falsehood just to get a laugh. Yeah. Like. Mm -hmm. It is way beyond normal bounds of like decency, like the way that they're pranking their parents and doing things. And for what, like just to get, you know, 10,000 likes versus 5,000 likes or, or what? I don't know. Like and, and, there's no end game. It's just they keep continuing that machine. Yeah. And I think there's this, my sister actually brought up this point the other day. She was like, you know, in today's world, when you have things like TikTok and you have all these like, you know, young people from all around the world of different experiences connecting and stuff, and not really like a sense of community where you're, um, uh, you know, what's really important is like uh, accountability. Like for example, the village yeah. dynamic, you know, how being responsible to not just your parents, but being responsible to like your friends, grandparents, right? Like treating them, them as elders of the community and not just like the nuclear family and saying, oh, like, my parents are the only people who have the right to tell me anything, right? And, um, you know, one of the important things about that is that we learn certain things, uh, the rites of passage or, you know, coming of age. There's so many things that, that we're supposed to be learning that we, it's difficult to communicate with young people on these platforms. So, for example, my sister was saying, do you remember how, like, there's no way today you can teach a young person the adab of, like, giving someone water? which my grandmother was like very particular. When you give someone water, you hold it like this and you are being respectful for it. And you never say no to someone asking you for water because that's like a basic human necessity. If, if, if your little sibling says, even if it's your like little kid, right? Who says, can you get me some water? You should never deny them, go get them water, right? So these kind of things of like adab and just etiquette, it's like, how is that 
is that even being communicated? Because I've seen young people not having like that at all. Um, well, and yeah, it's, I mean. So that reminds me like, you know, growing up, there was that more community feel, right? Like you grew up with your friends and then there was, ex there was literally like other training, how to interact with your friend's parents. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to my friend's house to play video games, how do I act? How do I talk to their parents? How am I representing my family, so to speak, right? Like, don't go over there and start cussing while you're playing games or doing, you know, like there's very strict, like, this is how you act. And there's a sense of accountability too. Like you can't just go act, you know, if I go to school and completely act up, word is going to get back to my parents, right? right? Someone's going to tell someone who's going to tell their parents, going to tell the other uncle and auntie, and it's going to come back in the moment. I'd be like, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And then now it's like, you just do all that online and there's no accountability. There's no limits. And not only that, but, but see when it's the community, you don't get to choose who it is, right? You're, you're forced to deal with them for better or for worse. Right. The, you know, the people that live near you, your friend, you know, your parents' social circle, like you're, you're stuck, whether you like them or not. But now you curate who that community is. And so not only can I completely act out however I want, but if someone dare come and try to hold me accountable, I just cut them out. Yeah. And I only have the friends that are going to keep liking and commenting and validating what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we're basically uh, out of time, but Umar, um, if people want to get in touch with you or see what you're up to, how can they get in touch with you, inshallah? Um, IbnAbiUmar.com. Uh, if they go to IbnAbiUmar.com slash newsletter, they can get on the email list. And that's pretty much anything that I'm doing, uh, I update it there. So podcasts, YouTube, book, writing, all that stuff, that's the central location. Uh, your podcast, what's that called? It's also IbnAbiUmar. Uh, can you they find it on apple podcasts yes you can awesome. uh yep awesome awesome cool well thank you so thank much you. yeah thank you so much this was a this was a great episode no i enjoyed it and so look here for having me on yeah but uh all right everyone this is faith in fine print with uh, your hosts nihal khan and alman nasrat take care assalamualaikum Okay.